You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. It was a really exciting and fun thing to be a part of, to spend a lot of time and dedicate to a film or a project that has real life implications is is pretty is a pretty exciting one and a pretty humbling one and certainly an, an exhausting one in a lot of ways. Maybe living in Maine as I do on a farm is a strategic advantage. My personal goal is to improve my own sustainability skills every day and then to empower other people by helping them do the same. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 72, Sustainability, airing for the first time on January 27th, 2013. Good ideas become truly great when we back them with a solid foundation of practice. As part of our sustainability show, Cecily Pingree describes her experience with Maine's own organic milk farmers while filming the documentary Betting the Farm. And TEDx Dirigo presenter Seth Silverton explores the idea of self-reliance as espoused by the Woodshop School. What does it mean to be sustainable or act in a sustainable way? It really means being able to do something over the long term. Sustainability has become a buzzword and really something that we've had difficulty embracing, much less defining. In my life, I try to do things that contribute to the healthiness of the planet, the healthiness and wellness of my children, my family, um, and myself as a person. Things like composting or recycling. What I'm really trying to do is understand that life is long, and I want to minimize my potential negative impact on the world and maximize my potential positive impact. For me, that's really sustainability. It's really doing something that I can do for many years, hopefully till I die. Cecily Pingree and Seth Silverton both have unique views on sustainability based on their own personal experiences and based on time that they've spent with other people who are trying to create sustainable lives. We think you'll really benefit from hearing their interviews today. Let us know what you think and what your own ideas about sustainability are. We're really interested to hear other people um, and their approaches to building sustainable lives. Thank you for listening. Winston Churchill once said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. One thing that I spend a considerable amount of time on with my patients is their history, their health history, their family history, their social history, because I think it's important. None of us exists in a vacuum, and past actions that we've taken with regard to our health or general living can impact our present 
and our future circumstances. If you're an individual who wants to move forward in your life, I'd suggest that you spend some time thinking about where you've actually been and understand your own past history. If you'd like somebody to help you out with understanding this history, I'm that person. Give me a call. I'm Dr. Lisa at The Body Architect, 207-774-2196. And we'll help you learn from your history. Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is about health in general, but we we like the idea of sustainability and sustainable health from a much broader view than just individual health. And we know that our guest, the one that's sitting in the studio with us today, Cecily Pingree, is also about health and sustainability. So we thought we'd invite her in and have her talk to us about Betting the Farm, the film that she just created and I saw at the um, CIF Film Festival last fall. Um, and also about the type of work that she's doing out and about in the state of Maine and what she's seeing in the area of sustainability. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Cecily, you had to come down on off of the island and via ferry, and you've been all over the place. You must have quite a lot of energy to be able to be doing what you're doing. Um, yeah. I, uh, it, you know... It, it comes, I think, with the turf of living on an island. There's always a lot of logistics involved. So it's been interesting to be on the road for the last two months with the film because it's just a lot of logistics. Um, you know, for the most part, it feels um, it's very exciting, which I think helps my energy level. You know, going to different towns um, night after night with this film Um helps sort of bring a whole new energy to sort of moving and being on the road and living out of my car and all those kinds of things. But yeah. Now talk about sustainability. You've been doing filmmaking and you're, you're one of the founders of Pull Start Pictures. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, you were a filmmaker for many years. Mm -hmm. This this requires um, the ability to basically get up and go at a moment's notice because you actually have to be where the people are. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. And it's been, you know, Betting the Farm was a really interesting project that way because um, it was our first independent feature length film. And it really did require us to um, keep in touch with all of our main characters and go at a moment's notice. Um, We are lucky that the rest of our work, we do a lot of commissioned work for organizations, nonprofits, businesses, so we can kind of do it when we need to do it. But certainly when we get a call from the farmers, um, you got you know, you've got about six hours of travel getting on and off a ferry boat and driving to Aroostook County or Washington County. And it really was crucial. I mean, I learned a lot over the two years that we shot that, shot this film as far as being ready to go at any time, because um, there's certain moments that we would have missed if we hadn't have just trusted our gut and said, you know, this is probably a pretty important um, moment in these families' lives, in this company's lives, you know, everything that kind of our story re- revolved around. So, um, yeah, it was a good learning lesson on all of that. And, you know, and prior to that, I'd worked for a company in New York City for many years and definitely learned a lot just about that idea. If you're going to do kind of a run-and-gun documentary-style um, filming, um, particularly if it revolves around human beings' lives, that's just the nature of life, and you really just have to be ready to kind of put your own life on hold and say, oh, I have this great plan for this weekend, but you know, the next three days I have to go to this place and be with this family, be with this person, and shoot this, or it may affect the story. 
Why is it that farming has been so important? I know that you did um, work with the Maine Farmland Trust mm-hmm. and the Meet Your Farmer Project. Yeah. Um, and you've gone on to do Betting the Farm, which is about the moo milk mm-hmm. and uh, Maine organic milk. Why has farming become something that you've had an interest in? Yeah. Um, you know, we sort of naturally fell into the project, um, the commission project for Maine Farmland Trust, which hired us to make eight short films, um, which we called Meet Your Farmer, um, which was really just profiling um, small farms, big farms, um, organic farms um, all over the state of Maine. Um, And then we met one of the moo farmers. And when we met one of those moo farmers that became profiled in the Meet Your Farmer series, they had just got dropped by Hood and were sort of banding together to start their own milk company. So that, too, sort of all of a sudden ended up being um, what we thought would be a really interesting story. You had all these folks who didn't even know each other, who all got the same letter, um, dropped at the same time, and were forced to either stop dairy farming or band together and make something totally new um, and different and get into the marketplace um, fairly immediately. So I don't know necessarily if we went... we we were like, we want to just make films about farms for the next three years, but um, sort of one led to the other. And then once, particularly for betting the farm, once you're a couple months into it, um, you know, I'm sure it happens where people say, you know what, I just don't know if there's a story here. I don't know if we want to keep doing this. But we felt like once we had met our main characters and really started to um, spend time with them and connect with them and appreciate their story. It was like there was no turning back. Um, And so we didn't know we were going to shoot it for two years and really sort of get knee deep into dairy policy and this company and these people's lives. Um, But it it was inevitably what had to happen to make the film we wanted to make. Um, But I will say, with all that being said, I'm from a very rural area. Uh, grew up around a lot of farmers. I appreciate farming. Um, Before this, we were working on a long project for Penobscot East Resource Center, which was all about um, fishing communities in down east Maine. So, um, you know, there are two things that are crucial to the Maine economy, the Maine landscape. Um, So, and they're also, uh, you know, in my backyard. So it sort of felt like this was a natural place for us to sort of start out with our own independent film in a community that um, was pretty close to home and also one that we sort of understood. Um, Certainly um, have understood a lot more since we finished this film, but um, just that's just brazing the surface. (laughs) I was struck in watching the film. This was at CIEF, the Camden International Film Festival, and we had had... um, We'd had the founder of SEAF on last fall. I was struck watching you up on the stage with the farmers and the sense that there really wasn't a particular resolution to the story, that Maine's own organic milk was still really in its infancy as far as a company was concerned. And it was almost a discomfort or not quite resonance that was happening. Yeah. How was that to have a film that didn't really provide a resonant ending? Yeah, yeah. no, it's a, it's really interesting because, um, of course, finding your ending for a film is, or even knowing when you found an ending and you stopped shooting, for us was really difficult because um, when we finally stopped shooting, it was more, you know, there was, they, they weren't feeling the turbulent times that they had felt for the last two years that we had witnessed and we had filmed, but still it was, it's not, it was still a rocky road for these guys. So, um, 
that was probably the hardest part. We shot 300 hours. It's an 84-minute film. And finding that ending um, amongst those hours was very difficult. I mean, an ending that, you know, I mean, we obviously kept following them for two years because it felt like it was going to go one way or the other. The company was either going to fold up. All these farmers would be sort of left with plan B. And it was different for every farmer. Or um, it was going to keep inching along. Like, I think in the very beginning, we thought, this this is either going to fail or it's going to be an instant success. And that didn't, neither one of those happened. You know, they got, um, they were certainly at the edge of the cliff many, many times towards um, closing the company and bankruptcy and um, all these different things. But they never... They were never, it became very apparent to Jason and I, who, my co-director and brother-in-law, that, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like all of a sudden people were going to go in, you know, herds into the, uh, into the grocery store and make this company really successful. And it was all about, it's all about consumers for this company and how much they can sell um, across the state of Maine and now all over New England. So, um you know, it has been interesting because we've just finished a big main theatrical tour. And the question that I get, you know, first or second out of every um, Q&A that we do afterwards is, how are these guys doing? Where are they? Um, because the film can't, couldn't answer that question. And I even wonder whether if we kept shooting today, we'd still be able to, t- you know, change that ending. Um and make it feel like it was any more resolved because I talk to these farmers. I mean, most of them come to the Q and A's with me. So I see them, I've seen them a lot over the last year, even though we're not filming and, um, but they're getting regular paychecks and the sales are moving up and they're moving into new stores. And so there's all of these, um, little things that show that they are a company that is growing. But I think, um, you know, there's been a bunch of, uh, business, uh, classes, analysts, for this company that say, you know, it really takes for a startup company, it takes at least five years to see if a company is going to make it or not. You know, they'll, they'll crash and burn in the first year if they don't have the right capital or they don't have the right marketing or, and certainly all those problems, Moo had all those problems. But um, I think it's just starting to become a real company, um, which is exciting for them. But as far as a filmmaker, you know, incredibly um, exhausting being like, oh my gosh, should we, keep, should we keep shooting? Is anything changing? And, you know, so. Well, as somebody who was sitting and watching the film, I, I found it incredibly anxiety provoking yeah. to see people getting the bills for their, I don't know, their utilities mm-hmm. and think, how can I pay for this? And uh, how can right. I buy a new tractor? And, you know, there was one farmer who's relatively young and he and his wife had children that were mm-hmm. running around. And it really, you know, this idea of sustainability is, it's so important, and yet it's difficult to reach. Yeah. No, and it's, uh, that's a very good point. And I think that's what um, Moo Milk is all about, is finding that sort of sustainable place where, um, as a company, that they can sit on those uh, grocery shelves, they have enough consumers that go buy them, um, and they continuously kind of grow. Um, But getting to that sustainable place for them as a company has been incredibly challenging. And it's interesting because I think, you know, Um, Jason and I set out to make this film because we felt like these farmers were very compelling, but also this idea of starting a brand new company from scratch with barely any capital with a bunch of people you don't know in total outskirts of Maine, some of the most rural and poor places in New England, um, banding together so 
you know, all of a sudden you have you have enough product that you can get into Hannaford's and you can get into Whole Foods. You become a big customer of theirs right out of the gate, which unlike any of these farms could have done individually. You know, these guys could have never done that. They've got about 60,000 gallons of milk a week. Um, so that's a lot of milk. But they could have only come up with that if they had banded together and said, okay, well, we're going to try a new model of farming um, or a new, a new model of business by banding together, becoming um, what looks like a national company, essentially, um, or we're, they're sitting next to national companies in the grocery store, um, unless you're at a small co-op and it's your raw milk or it's your local farm, which is great. But, those, but these guys needed a much bigger market than that to survive, to survive in general. So the idea that um, they could be sustainable but still be small, still farm the way that they want to farm, still have their families um, work at those farms and not grow to a size that they just couldn't, they couldn't keep up with. Um, and a lot of these big companies, they're dairy farmers. I mean, you just don't see dairy farms this small um, banded together in sort of co-op. I mean, a lot of, a lot of dairy, dairy um, milk that you buy, say Organic Valley, a lot of great family farms, but most of them are pretty big at this point in time. Um, so again, the idea of sustainability as, as far as small farms um, and dairy farming is a really hard um, industry to make it in and particularly be small and have somebody that will buy your milk. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. A few years ago, we were working with a nonprofit on sustainability. They were trying to figure out how to replace a large government check that was going away. It took some doing, but what we came up with was a ladder to help them climb back up, not just this time, but every time they get knocked down by financial circumstances. The first rung was to realize all the different ways that money flows through the system. The second rung was to align their services and product with a value exchange that made sense for everyone involved. The third rung was to communicate their good works and all the ways that people could contribute their time, talent, and treasure. By understanding the need for currency in all its forms, the loss of funds became less important than communicating the value provided. If you need help building your ladder, or just a person to steady it during a difficult transition, send us an email at info at shepherdfinancialmain.com, subject sustainability. Shepherd Financial, securities and advisory offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. As a documentary filmmaker, you're actually a storyteller of sorts. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not of sorts. You're yeah. you're a storyteller, and you end up telling the stories of the people that 
you film. You, and, and you have to create a story out of what you see. Do you see this as being an important part of an organization's sustainability is your ability to tell their story? Yeah, I mean, we certainly hope so. I mean, I think uh, as a company, as Polestar Pictures, we do a lot of um, trying to work with organizations um, that are working on really crucial issues in the state of Maine and, and outside of Maine, too, whether it's, you know, healthcare or landscape or um, trying to save farmland, trying to start new businesses, I mean, any of those things. And we sort of say, okay, so here's your mission statement as an organization, but who does this affect? Who are these people behind this that's either going to affect their life or, you know, say in the fishing, it's like, who are the people that are fishing that really like are all about sustainable policies and want to be part of that conversation and, you know, sort of helping uh, find the stories? Because of course, you know, I think most people will say like stories are very compelling, um, particularly if you're trying to make a case of why your organization is doing great work. Um, people behind it that are doing, that are, that are people that you're advocating for, um, are great spokespeople. And we certainly usually recommend that we seek those folks out and try to build a, an organizational story out of that. Um, and then, of course, with, with uh, you know, documentary work, it's like with our, with betting the farm, it was crucial for us to say, okay, so who are these people that are going to help tell this story? Because um, there's a lot of great films out there um, that have narration and do animation. And, you know, our stories like Food Inc., where you have a lot of really smart policy people telling you why this is a crucial, critical issue. We all need to be sort of aware of it. But um, we weren't those film filmmakers. We didn't know how to make that film, nor did we want to. We really want to tell a film about... Um, where we want to tell it through people's lives and how it sort of unfolded and why someone else might care about it, you know, because at the end of the day, betting the farm is a story about dairy farmers, but we also felt like it's a story that anybody could relate to as far as business, as far as running um, a small business or a fam raising your family or being really stressed out about a certain thing in your lives. And then everything around it starts to sort of crack and relationships um, get exhausted. And, you know, so we felt like there was a lot of threads that are very typical in every human being's lives that could you could sort of empathize and also, of course, sort of start to root for them and say, well, maybe Dairy farming is bigger than just whether a small farm can make it. It's about the landscape. It's about, you know, all these other important aspects of all of our lives. But we don't necessarily, you know, particularly we live anywhere. But if we live in Portland, it's like, mm, I don't know about Roostick County. Like, I don't know that much about Roostick. And I don't really go there. And then you watch this film and you're like, oh, yeah, like, I may want to visit there. I don't want to live there. But, you know, this lifestyle, this life, this product is important, is more important maybe than I thought it was. So... I understand that you are um, a 2013 Media and Performing Arts Fellow with the Maine Arts Commission. So you have that in your um, future. What else is in your future? What's coming up for you? Um, well, this year, yeah, that was a great honor. Um, it still is a great honor. So I hope uh, I hope that we um, we will be working on a bunch of uh, commissioned work this year for a variety of organizations and also hopefully start a new independent film. And I'm not sure exactly what that will look like or what it will be. We've got a couple of ideas in the pot. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're hoping to continue to make films, um, make important films, films that people want to watch that are entertaining but also um, are useful. 
So that's sort of our hope for the next year. My brother-in-law um, conveniently is my business partner. My business partner is conveniently my brother-in-law. Um, and he just had a second kid. So, of course, you know, there's always shifting. We're always bringing new people onto our team. Um, but it looks like it's going to be a good year. So, And what is it about documentary filmmaking and maybe the things in your life in particular that sustains you? Yeah. You know, I've learned um, I still am such a new filmmaker um, in many, many ways, and I feel like I'm constantly learning, and I'm constantly surprised. I mean, I think we learned a lot through this last year, or these last two years of making Betting in the Farm that certainly, um, I think in retrospect, retrospect has um, been really great, but it certainly has sustained me to get involved in a project where... Um, to work that intensely with a bunch of folks where you're filming their lives and you become really part of their their life and their sort of family fabric um, because, you know, you are a bystander to everything that's going on in their life. And that was a really, it was a really um, exciting and fun, um, you know, thing to be a part of, but also very humbling in the sense that I feel like um, I'm always surprised. And we would have never made this film if these people that we decided to follow had been so open with us. Um, and it was shocking to me that anyone would want to be followed around <laughs> with a camera. Um, but of course, our li- their lives are much bigger than just this film. So they were willing to. But I think um, as far as sustaining me, um, you know, to spend a lot of time um, and dedicate to a film or a project that has real life implications um, is is pretty is a pretty exciting one and a pretty humbling one and certainly an, an exhausting one in a lot of ways. I'm um, just sort of figure out how to do that and how to do that well and be respectful and honest about someone else's story that you've captured hundreds of hours of. Um, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's, it certainly is really exciting to me to think about the future of the projects that we could tackle um, that are about, you know, really important things and really fun things and really great characters and really great places in Maine and outside of Maine um, to sort of piecemeal all that together. And, um, you know, and film's one of those things that I feel really lucky to do because it's very palatable to most people. You know, most people, it feels like an art form that's not so far away. Um, you know, it's pretty accessible to most of us most of the time. So that feels like a great medium for, for us to sort of work in and be challenged by, definitely challenged by. So that's, that is a, a sustaining factor, is something that I'm sure we will never you know, as far as pull start pictures, we will always be staying up late trying to figure out how to do it right and doing it all over again. And that seems fun. <laughs> well, I appreciate your coming and spending time with me today. We've been speaking with Cecily Pingree of Pull Start Pictures and co creator and filmmaker of Betting the Farm. So thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, The Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com or call 207-774 2196 and get started with the body architect today and by dr john herzog of orthopedic specialists in falmouth maine at orthopedic specialists ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree 
with state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. As listeners of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast may know, we've um, started out the whole show talking about TEDx Dirigo about a year ago, and we've talked about TEDx Dirigo since, and we've had guests from TEDx Dirigo on, but we only pick the um, sort of best spoken, most important guests to come on, and one of these is Seth Silverton, who is the director of the Woodshop School who came on to talk to us today about sustainability. Wow, that is such a nice introduction. Thank you so much. Well, you are welcome. I enjoyed watching, uh, you were at TEDx Dirigo up at Bates, and it was the Villages um, show. And of course, we also had the director, um, Adam Burke, of TEDx Dirigo on in, I think it was August or September, so. Fabulous interview. Yes, he's a very well-spoken man. As are you. Yes. Uh, 99 out of 100 days, I absolutely am well-spoken. All right. Well, be well-spoken today. Tell us about the Woodshop School. Cool. Well, the Woodshop School was founded in order to answer kind of what I consider to be the most pressing issue of our time, and that is uh, resource uh, scarcity uh, and um, uh, addressing it in a positive way by uh, talking about what it is that people can do within themselves and within their worldview and within their daily tasks to begin to live a slightly different kind of life that will make this shift into what some people refer to as a post-peak oil world and what other people think of as dealing with climate change more effectively. And these are all extremely valid concerns. And of course, there's a big market out there. And some of it is manifested, uh, some of the responses to this reality uh, are manifested in, in different ways. And I think it's very, very important for somebody to say, here's a place where we can go deal with this in a healthy way. So um, I'm going to be aware of questions like, where does my food come from? You know, and where does my water come from? Literally, what are the steps that it takes to get that water coming out of my faucet and that food to my plate? Because if you do the math and you, and you go backwards and you, and you realize that a lot of the food uh, that we eat comes from an unsustainable system of delivery. But not only that, that unsustainable system of delivery is responsible for poisoning us as a people. And that is, by definition, unsustainable. So... It's important to have your attention on the fact that maybe living in Maine is a great thing. Maybe living in Maine, as I do on a farm, is a strategic advantage. And so, uh, as I said in my TED Talk, you know, my, my personal goal is to improve my own sustainability skills every day and then to empower other people by helping them do the same. Uh, we taught um, uh, a class called Attributes of the Sustainable Mind, which is kind of the study guide for a book that I'm working called of the same name. And these are 21 attributes and daily practices that people can uh, start having their attention on one a day. And they're things like, you know, how has this life of entitlement and peak oil and the ability and the wonderful things that that brings to my door and to my plate. How has that changed me as a human being? And what happens in the absence of that? 
So very important for judgment to be a thing of the past in one's psyche, in one's, in one's daily routine. So I, I ask that people just have their attention on words like judgment and what it does to our interpersonal relationships and our relationships with place and how we can benefit by slowing down a little bit and, and not judging as much, not judging circumstances or other people and understanding that we really need to become leaders of sustainability in our own community which leads to another one of the attributes of the sustainable mind or another one of the practices, which is to become uh, a compiler of uh, sustainable activities in your community. Become an active builder of networks. And when you become an active builder of networks, uh, you discover that you can help people. You can help people begin to insulate them from this very real thing uh, called paradigm shift, called peak oil, and called climate change, as well as a number of other things that uh, are happening right now in our culture. This all came about, the Woodshop School and even your move to Maine, um, from because of a very significant event that happened not only in your life, but in the lives of Americans and maybe even citizens of the world. Tell me about that. It was a, it was a moment of um, reckoning for me. We lived in Brooklyn, New York. And we lived in a neighborhood that, um, and the neighborhood came about at the early, early, early part of the 20th century. Uh, and if you've seen the documentaries on New York and the development of New York, you'll see that the subway system uh, was, was built to address overcrowding in New York City. We lived all the way at the end of Flatbush Avenue, close to Brooklyn College, where I did my undergraduate studies. Great school, by the way. Love Brooklyn College. And so um, when September 11 happened, I um, turned to my wife as the second tower came down, and I said, we're moving to Maine. I had two small children, uh, AJ and Emma, and um, that started um, a process of internal discovery and exploration for myself and for my family that has led to um, what I consider to be all sorts of wholesome and enjoyable and fun behaviors that we do on a daily basis. We, you know, that event landed us in Maine. I said, we're moving to Maine. We did exactly that. We had like the most major yard sales in history, you know, lightened our load and just took off in a, in a big truck and came up here and we rented a house in Camden. And I began to see the differences in our culture and the way this tremendous change was manifesting itself in this part of the world. And I began to have my attention on the fact that maybe what I did, I'm not recommending that people abandon the cities and move to Maine, but I think we have a tremendous strategic advantage because part of paradigm shift is climate change. And part of climate change is water scarcity. And unfortunately, water-related events like Sandy. So these shifting tides, if you will, um, uh, are tremendously um, advantageous for people who live in the state of Maine because Maine is one of two water-rich regions in the country. And it is a station, a, a, station, a state with tremendously uh, undeveloped and unexploited, if you will, natural resources. And for the state of Maine, it's tremendously important that we manage these resources to our advantage. They are going to give us 
the opportunity to be the breadbasket of New England. Because, of course, water scarcity means that the tremendous aquifer that is in the center of the country, which has an unpronounceable name, which sounds like Olagalo Aquifer, but I'm dyslexic and tongue-tied anyway, so I won't try it. Uh, it's, it's depleted, and it runs into mud frequently. And uh, that's where our country's breadbasket is. And we have turned that part of the country into, well, some would see it as a, um, a, a toxic waste site of food where uh, fertilizers, which are come by unnaturally, um, fertilize land, which is tremendously distant from us. And you, know, you, put your, um, you put that food, that product, into a vehicle which uses petroleum, which is in decline, and get it to wherever it's going, to the population centers. Tell me how you balance the need to um, bring people to a place where they have to change, where you're asking them to think about things and also change their behaviors, um, and, and have enough positive energy to make these changes, but simultaneously be reckoning with the notions of um, what you've called our poisoned food network and poisoned food and scarcity and post-peak oil. I mean, how do you get them past the fear of those notions and into the positive energy required for change? The real way in which human beings in Western civilization, or in any civilization, in any part of the world, the real way in which people, human beings, will be able to conquer this tremendous challenge, and we will, is by acknowledging the fact that we are an interdependent species and that it is incumbent upon us to not stock up on rice and potatoes and things of that nature and say, you can't get my food, and when the end comes, I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, so the government's not going to steal my brainwaves. That's not the answer. The answer is by reaching out to people in your community, in particular in Maine, where we have all the advantages, all of the advantages. We have tremendous soil. We have, uh, we have tremendous rainfall still. And to manage that as a village. The theme for the TEDx talk was villages. And if you go to see my TED talk, if you YouTube Seth Silverton or you go to TEDxDirigo.com and you, you look at my TED talk, <clears throat> I take a moment to say, hey, listen, the theme of today is villages. And that is a great call because a village is exactly what's required to extract us from this situation. I, I believe that to the root of my soul. Also, just as an aside, the practice of developing this village, the practice of meeting and developing community for me, and seeing my children abandon video games, abandon texting, and volunteer as they did on Saturday night to uh, do a dinner for Hurricane Sandy relief efforts. When you start announcing an intention for you and your family to embrace those behaviors, good things happen. And all of a sudden, people start calling you and sending you emails and saying things like, hey, how do I do this? Or you become an authority on sustainability in your community. So the answer to your question, Lisa, in a long roundabout kind of way, is that it's necessary for people to become leaders of sustainability and resilience in their own community. A word on this. Resilience and sustainability are phrases, they're words, 
None is more valid than any other. Arguing about that is counterproductive. Sustainability communities, communities that embrace sustainability are resilient, and resilient communities, by their nature, engage in sustainable acts and practices. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. And by Booth, accounting and business management services, payroll and bookkeeping. Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmain.com for more information. Is there a place for technology in this upcoming sustainable world? I mean, you talked about abandoning video games and texting and that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you that it's important to kind of go back towards the human to some extent. But is there a way that we can bring the technology and the advances that we've had um, due to modern civilization in to bear? Uh, great question. I guess you've been doing this for a while. <laughs> and what I would say is, without question, the answer is yes. Because um, things like social networking and things like electronic communications and things like listening to podcasts such as yours, which provide human beings with information that they can use for positive change in their lives, is not only going to be a part of it, it is absolutely critical for our future sustainability. And the good news is it's not going away. If you look at studies about the ways in which people think about things like gender, race, rape, violent behaviors from our past as human beings, you discover that when there is any polling done with questions like, I heard this on NPR the other day, and I'm sorry I couldn't uh, um, get the exact study for you, but it's Googleable which is another wonderful thing. Everything is Googleable. Uh, people who answer questions like, in 1970, it is, uh, I do not want a black person living next door to me. In the 1970s, that number was in the 60s or the 70s on a percentile basis, specifically in the South. And then when they took that study again, two years ago, it was 6%, and that was the crackpot response. Um, we are changing as a species. We are developing new ways of compassionate communication. I'm going to download this podcast when it airs, and I'm going to put it up on the Woodshop School website, not because I'm on your show, but because I value your show. I also share, I, I actively share, uh, for instance, Adam's interview that you did, which I thought was brilliant. Um, and you know what? Must listening. So download it now. Like, as you're listening to me, click it and download it now. Okay, thank you. I admire your passion, Seth. And, and I think it must be passion that's enabling you to do something that is admittedly um, a bit risky, to move your family up to Camden and to start a farm and a sustainability school and coming out of New York City as you did. I'm going to push back a little bit and ask you why you think it's risky. Well, I guess the people that I have known who have come from urban centers tend to be 
uh, tend to have less experience, and I don't want to assume anything about you and your life, but they tend to have a little bit less experience living in um, less urban places like Maine. So sometimes they find that the reality and the manifestation of something is very different from the idealization. I understand. And don't think for a second that I didn't do tons of research about people who have moved to this part of the world during that time. I really feel that there's an energy and this energy is being broadcast from this place and it attracts people who are who have positive intentions, who are open-eyed, who don't have any delusions about what their circumstance is going to be because everybody can investigate what is my potential income going to be. So you did you're saying it wasn't risky because you felt like you had done a lot of background work before you came here in the first place. You know what? I I am from Brooklyn, New York. I went to Brooklyn Friends School in the grungiest part of Brooklyn at the time. No, check that. Really not. But I traveled the subway every day to go to college. I've been shot at. I've been threatened. I have been harassed. And this is not the typical experience of people in New York. But I'm telling you that if you've been there for long enough, it happens. And it's excruciating to go through that grind and look at the way human beings react to each other and behave and not get all the time the beautiful reaction of what happened on September 12th. 2001, which was the most astonishingly beautiful day of my life. Horrific, terrifying, but beautiful. Because I saw what happened to human beings when they strip away all of the garbage, all of the judgment, and when they see another human being in need. This is the same thing that happens here. It is the ground state of human beings. It is our nature to behave this way. I can more easily manifest that here. There's less PIB involved in my life, pain in the butt. That fee doesn't exist as a line item on my charts anymore. And I'm blessed. I have a, I have a, a relatively stable situation. My car has 148,000 miles on it, but it still runs. I have land out back. I've got 10 chickens. I've got like 20 bunnies. I get eggs. It's fantastic. So... Considering what you have already dealt with in your life, you didn't consider this this move seemed not that risky to you. I couldn't wait to get up here. Okay. And so the you, reason is because I summered up here as a kid. Okay. It wasn't it wasn't zero to sixty or zero to a hundred and you know, I had a feeling of camaraderie. I had lifelong friends that were up here who I'm still friends with and 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 I was tremendously blessed. So in that regard. even if it wasn't okay, so let's say it wasn't risky at all. You did your research, you knew people up here but you still did something that was very different and there wasn't really um, a blueprint for you. You're so right. maybe at the very least you did something that was unique. Let's just say that. Have there been challenges associated with that? Without question, there have been tremendous challenges. And when you come to a community as an outsider, and certainly anybody who is in my situation, anybody who's in my position, in my family's position, knows that they all know the phrase, just because the kittens were born in the oven doesn't make them biscuits. That's a real and living and breathing thing. My kids were born in Methodist Hospital on 7th Avenue. They're bad. That's a challenge. You're not one of us. You'll never be one of us. It's okay. I understand where it comes from. I just want to help people understand this paradigm shift and prepare for it. And what I discovered is the people of the state 
are the best prepared to conquer that, not only in the United States, but probably in Western civilization. Well, the other thing that I know about your area, Lincolnville, Camden, the mid-coast region of Maine, is that you're not the only one who is a biscuit. No, lots, lots I'm of, not. Lots of people have come from other places. In fact, I would go so far as to say that there are maybe the majority in this area right now. So have you found any sort of camaraderie with those individuals? Uh, the visionary leader of sustainability and entrepreneurship, Steve Koltai, who K-O-L-T-A-I, who also gave a TEDx talk at TEDx Deer Ago, a very compelling TEDx talk right after you get done downloading all of Lisa's shows to iTunes. Absolutely must go and watch Steve Koltai, also Don Gooding. Uh, who heads Maine Angels. Steve Coltai is a neighbor of mine, as it turns out, in Lincolnville Center, Maine. He lives on Lake McGonagall, and he is um, from California. He was in the movie business, and he is now uh, a, uh, works for the State Department for Hillary Clinton. Um, and he travels the globe promoting entrepreneurship. If you uh, are listening to this right now, and you have the ability to watch his talk, I highly recommend it. Um, it really addresses the need uh, for entrepreneurship, as does Don Goodings, by the way. So Steve lives in Lincolnville. Uh, there is a tremendous, tremendous Brooklyn, New York, uh, ironically enough, to Lincolnville tangent. Uh, there's a thread that connects those two communities together. Weird. I don't know why. I'm sure it's not me. I didn't do it. I'm not fessing up to it. But I noticed that people who run culinary schools here, for instance, on the coast at Saltwater Farm, um, often partner with butchers from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, I run into people from Brooklyn all the time. So I'm not alone. And I'm supported. Uh, as soon as I moved to Maine, everybody in my family moved to Maine. Um, you know, my dad, my mom, my sister. It's a blessing. You know, it's fun. People love it here. You can't get rid of us. And that's all part of this building of villages and this building of a sustainable network is that you do create connections with people, whether they're people who were living here before, whether they come here after to join you. But that's what you're saying is sustainability really is primarily about connections. Sustainability is not only primarily about connections, but it is about your worldview. If you look around at the scary things that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, and you start doing the math on what those scary things are, and if you don't think it's time to take positive action in your life for you to have a relationship with place, for you to have a relationship with water, for you to understand what composting is, for you to understand what foods grow here, and for you to understand that things like Hurricane Sandy are the new normal. It's on you. It's incumbent upon you to become a leader of sustainability. That is on the individual. My message is, listen up. Things are changing. You see it all the time when you tune into the news, but experientially as well. When you have an experience of climate change or paradigm shift in regard to peak oil, if you don't pay attention, it's on you. If you drive a Hummer and it's taking all of your money to fill that thing up and insure it, 
and you know that things are changing and that we are past peak oil, which we are, that conversation's over too. If you know these things and you still act in a way which is contrary to your own sustainability or your own resilience, that is on you. It's about your personal life and your personal decisions. The only healthy way to start making change in your own life is to develop your own skills and then to help other people. When you help other people become resilient and sustainable, it creates a vacuum and that vacuum is filled tenfold. And it's filled tenfold with what it is that you really need, not what it is that you really want at that moment. Is there a way to engage in sustainable behavior short of raising chickens and having your own farm and for people who might not have access to Absolutely. that situation? We're scattered as a people. We find ourselves in different situations. We find ourselves challenged by this reality. And so take solace in the creating of an intention. Your very first step is to come to the reckoning of this paradigm shift and what it means for you as a leader and what it means for your family. And you must announce an intention. As crazy as it sounds, as long as it's based on healthy things, it's up to you. My intention is to help other people through developing their sustainability skills. That's mine. I've heard Deepak Chopra say, my intention is to heal, to be a healer. Whatever it is that floats your boat, you better start. You better start developing those skills and sharing those skills and compiling a database on your iPhone, on your iPad, on your Android, on your PC or on your Mac, on your MacBook, whatever product I can plug right now, develop a database called My Sustainable Village and start listing names and make it your business to call these people and say, hey, listen, I'm interested in helping. I like goat cheese. I hear you make goat cheese. That must mean you have goat poop. Can I have some if I buy your cheese? Fantastic, I need you know fertilizer. Start making these relationships. I like bees, I like honey. Christy Hemingway knows everything about honey. She gave a great TED talk. We need bees. These are little things. Announce your intention. If you announce your intention, all of a sudden things will start to happen. And if you're interested in our curriculum, you can go to woodchopschool.com to read up on us. Wood, C-H-O-P, school.com to read up on us. Uh, and also, uh, incidentally, to donate to the Woodchop School. I can't leave this interview without plugging the donation button on the bottom of the page. You can also see my TED Talk there. I didn't mean to artificially wrap this interview. <laughs> I think that's... Um Perfect way to end. You've done a great job explaining sustainability and what you're doing with sustainability with the Woodshop School up in the Midcoast region of Maine. So I do encourage people to go to your website and to listen to your TED Talk, which of course I have done, so I can attest to its um, inspirational nature. Thank and, you. I um, need the hits. I need to break <laughs> a thousand by this afternoon. Okay. No pressure. Well, everybody, please help Seth with that. And we hope that people have been um, inspired to work towards their own intentions and sustainability. So thank you for spending time with me. We've been speaking with Seth Silverton of the Woodshop School. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for your work. And thank you for having me.
We're fortunate at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to have many interesting and insightful guests join us in our studio. One of these individuals, after joining us, was elected to the U.S. Senate as a representative from Maine. Here's an excerpt from our interview with Angus King as part of our Green Street show last year. We hope you enjoy this. As I looked out over the landscape in the late 90s, what I saw coming was an economy that was much more dependent upon education and technology than hard work and a strong back. So my theory was, pretty straightforward, if we had the best educated and the most digitally literate society in the world, we'd win. The, the, the legislature never sleeps, in a sense. Uh, you know, there's, there's always uh, change, and, and no, nothing is ever finally settled. And in fact, that's one of the problems with term limits. Uh, I voted for term limits back in 1993, and I think it was a mistake, frankly, uh, because one of the things that happens is the legislature now turns over so fast that there's a loss of institutional memory. That a major, there could be a major issue, a lot of argument, a lot of debate, a lot of research, a lot of data, and then four years later, two-thirds of the people that went through all that are gone. Uh, in my eight years as governor, I had four speakers of the House. and. We have perfectly good people now, but it's just it's just this sort of turnover. And what's happened is a lot of the power of the legislature has sort of migrated to the governor's office or to the lobbyists, or just sort of evaporated. So, uh, yeah, you 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 can you think an issue is settled, and two or three years later, you're right back at it. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast Show Number Seventy Two, Sustainability. Our guests have included filmmaker Cecily Pingree and Seth Silverton of the Woodshop School. For more information on these guests, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's shows, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest under doctorlisa and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.org. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, please do let our sponsors know that you heard about them here. We're privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that our show will contribute to sustainable wellness in your world. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Courtney Taberge. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. 
Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.